Hello and it's great to see spring is in the air and thank you for joining us on our podcast Saving Tomorrow's Planet where we search the world to speak to pioneering people taking action to save the planet. We have listeners around the world from the UK to the USA from Bangladesh to Brazil so do tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast and our website of the same name. Today, I'm talking to Pendragon Stewart, Associate Director of GlobeScan, which is an environmental and sustainable insights and strategy firm that helps NGOs, companies and governments. Now, I met Penn on an interesting knowledge sharing call with a leading American consumer goods company, and we started talking rubbish. Not talking a lot of rubbish, but rather the realisation that companies take great care and are fully responsible for the sourcing, the making, the distributing and the marketing of their products. But when it comes to their disposal, it's the councils and governments that have to pick up the bill and the responsibility, which does not seem like a viable approach for the future. Penn shone a light on the changes that are coming, and we hand over to him now. What's always good is to start by finding out where you are, because we speak to people from all around the world, and so perhaps you can just tell us where you are at this moment. Absolutely. So I am currently in, um, in southeast London, so uh, beautiful concrete, uh, as far as the eye can see, um, and yeah, very much looking forward to when we're allowed out of the house again. Great. Well, we're very delighted to speak to you. It'd be nice just to hear where your passion for sustainability started. What's your personal journey? Mm-hmm. So um, I suppose it started um, when, I was a, when I was a young kid. There was sort of that emotional appeal of like, look at these all these awful things we're doing about destroying forests and that kind of thing. And then kind of it evolved into actually a sort of a, a logical passion of, well, why are we doing these things? All of them are kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, whether it's about uh, global warming in particular, uh, it's going to damage everyone. It's going to hurt everyone. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Um, if it's about you know the ability to get uh, raw materials, well, why are we cutting off our own uh, ability to to keep making products? All of these things just sort of kept kept coming around to say this is this is almost the the one most logical thing to act on because it's against everyone's interests. You know, whatever kind of uh, political persuasion you're on, whatever sort of economic view you come at things. So it kind of it started emotional, and then sort of had that sort of uh, that logical uh, build in. Great. So how has that influenced the career that you have followed? Perhaps there's a little bit about yeah, the career that you are, the journey you're on. Mm-hmm. Great. So, um, so I started out at, um, at actually Cantor, um, where, where you worked. Um, so that was in uh, part of the organization that looked into foresights and futures. Um, so it was, you know, what, what next? What companies need to think of next? What are customers going to need? How is the world going to evolve? And, you know, in that, just consistently what came out is that sustainability is the one thing that we know is an issue and we know we have to deal with. So kind of from that, um, that was a passion that kind of I, I followed whilst at Kanto and then I wanted to kind of focus more, more specifically on that. So I moved to Sancroft, which is a, a dedicated sustainability consultancy um, to, to kind of really uh, dive deeper into some of the specifics and some of the technicalities. So would you say that you have a, a natural inclination or ability to think about the future because that is an important skill here? Um, I suppose it's, I don't know if it's natural, I built it, but um, I, I studied history, which is all about how does, how does the world change in the past? Um, and then I realized, well, actually, a lot of those skills, you know, social, political, economic, cultural change, apply that to the future. And you have something really interesting. And yeah, and I find really, really engaging because it, it, it helps you think about a whole system 
uh, in a way that we're often told to just think in terms of individual silos of well, what's going to happen with the economics or what's going to happen with the politics, etc. Good. So the one area I wanted to really focus on with you is perhaps a little bit of a, a strange subject. It's in some ways about rubbish in some ways. It's <laughs> what happens, you know, when uh, companies make products and hand it to the consumer and everybody then ignores the next step. And yet this is uh, a crucial component of uh, <laughs> the sustainability journey. And you've got some very interesting views about how the world as we live it in the West, let's say, because I think there's a different picture in, in different countries, just uh, assume that the way rubbish is dealt with and we pay for it through taxes and so on is just going to continue. So you're a futurologist. The future may not look the same as it is now. Perhaps let's start with governments. You know, what do you think uh, to start with? governments might do differently in the future as they look at waste and what we should do with it? Mm -hmm. So waste, yes, yeah. sometimes it's seen as not a very sexy subject, but actually it's um, waste is just value that's been misplaced. Um, it's just something, something that could, could be great, but you've just decided to, to chuck it away and importantly pay to chuck it away. And that's where we're seeing a lot of focus in terms of the government action. So there's this um, idea called extended producer responsibility, bit of jargon, but you'll see it around a lot. And what that's saying is that actually, if a producer puts something onto the market, if you create a, a, a bottle, a bottle uh, for a drink, you put it onto the market, knowing full well that someone's just going to uh, chuck it on the side of the road when they're done with it. Well, someone's got to clean up that, that bottle on the side of the road. And if you as a producer have made it in a way that it's going to be chucked away, maybe it's because of your advertising. You know, we've seen, um, if, you, if you look back only sort of a couple of decades, lots of these, say, sports drinks manufacturers would even have in their ads, someone would like drink something and then just chuck it to the side and sort of run by. So, so there's kind of a view of if as a manufacturer, you've made something that's always going to be chucked away and, you know, it's going to have to be dealt with. Well, actually, you should pay for how it is disposed of. So, you know, the worst version is, you know, you should pay if it has to be litter picked. But equally, if you create something that's... Um, that's really hard to collect and recycle. Well, actually, you should pay for how you know the trucks that have to come and pick it up, the trucks that have to take it to a recycling plant, the cost to recycle that material, because you're the one who's created that issue. So you should be the one who pays for solving it. So that's so, kind of that's the principle that people are yeah. moving towards. Go ahead. No. Um, so have we got an example that you can share where? Uh, that's been actually executed, the idea of saying to a producer, well, you've got to pay for it, because I'm struggling to think of one. Well, there's, um, there's a big piece of legislation which is currently um, being consulted on and will come through um, for, I believe it's 2025, which will be enshrining in law that every producer in the UK, well, particularly in, in England because of the way that um, that works, uh, is required to pay the full cost of dealing with all their packaging waste. That's already definitely going to happen. Exactly how it happens is what they're deciding at the moment, but that is 100% going to happen. Um, so that, that's already in, in train. And, and there's there the interesting example that we were talking about previously around uh, cigarette butts uh, and how, again, that's now being mandated that uh, cigarette manufacturers are going to have to pay for the cleanup of all cigarette butts. Because again, that's something that they've manufactured. They know that people just dump on, on the street, so surely they should pay for. And that's how the government is moving. Wow. So can you share how that might actually look? Because it's quite hard to picture, you know, mm -hmm. for example, allocating the cost for cleaning up butts. That must be pretty hard. But there may be simpler things that are just going into our rubbish. So perhaps we'll keep it simple to start. Yeah. 
So um, for our rubbish, effectively what's going to happen is that at the moment, um, local authorities pay for the trucks that come and pick up your rubbish and then send it to, to the tip to be burnt, to be recycled. Um, and that's, that's paid for by local authorities, by government, by taxpayers. What we're going to see is that all of that cost is going to instead be charged back to um, the brands and manufacturers that are producing it at the moment. Wow. So again, the, the technicalities of how it works and how it's transferred, that's some of the stuff that they're dealing with at the moment. But that sort of is, is enshrined into, it definitely will happen. And not just in the UK, um, there's a principle that's been uh, um, accepted across the entire EU. And there's also lots of uh, bills at a state level within the US. So that is going to happen. And manufacturers will have to pay for all of the cost of trucks to pick up, collect, recycle, burn, whatever, everything that they put, uh, put onto our shelves. So um, whenever a regulation comes in, and particularly if there's mm -hmm. a cost, uh, companies and people uh, will start with companies first, you know, seek mm -hmm. to minimize that because that could be a large part of their profits because I guess anybody... Well, so how do you... Got some views on how companies might react uh, or are anticipating or thinking about it? So well, one of the interesting things is that um, for a while, a lot of companies have been quite pretty oblivious to this. This is, you know, it's one of those things that are definitely coming, um, but they've kind of, they haven't really been paying attention to what sort of cost it's going to mean. So as an example, uh, within England, um, currently there's a small amount of cost paid to do with packaging. Um, and those costs are going to increase 21 times when this new legislation comes in. Um, so where there are a lot of firms, if you're talking about a, a, a really large firm, um, sort of, you know, the the Unilevers, the Nestle's, et cetera, of the world, they may have a bill which at the moment is in the tens or low hundreds of thousands of pounds a year. Multiply that by 20, and suddenly it becomes something that boards are aware of and have to deal with. Um, and, and so in terms of that, that question of how, how are they going to, uh, to, to act and react? Um, well, firstly, not fast enough yet, um, but what we're, what we're starting to see from, from a lot of the work we've been doing with, you know, with, with boards and exec committees, they're actually starting to recognize this and seeing, well, actually, we need to do an audit of our entire, um, all, all the packaging that we, um, that we put out. Because if we're going to face this massive bill, well, let's get ahead of finding ways to reduce it. And so there's simple things like in the legislation, they say, if you're putting onto a shelf something that can't be recycled. So an, a, a good example is a lot of um, black plastics historically can't be recycled. So if you're putting that onto the market, we're saying as a government, you can't recycle this, that's bad, you're gonna have to pay extra. So the first step is look through your packaging, go, do we need all of this? We're gonna have to pay extra for all of it. So can we just you know, strip out some of the, the third, the fourth layer of packaging? And equally, are there things that you can't recycle? So let's switch out of those. It's easier said than done, but there are a lot of quick wins that companies are sort of seeing and starting to move on. So uh, now that's very, very interesting. And can we picture a way that the consumer is sort of washing their hands of responsibility in, in any way? Or where, where do you feel the consumer fits into this new journey that might occur or that is going to occur? Well, it's a really interesting question because um, at the moment, there's a lot of sense that, you know, sustainability is something that more and more people care about. There's, you know, Blue Planet effect. Um, everyone cares about this kind of thing. But if you look at the recycling levels within the UK, they're actually sort of pretty static. Uh, they haven't changed a lot. And one of the interesting things about the, the new legislation coming in is it's going to uh, require, again, the manufacturers, because they'll be paying for everything, to pay for educating consumers as well. Wow. So they won't just pay for picking up material. They're going to be paying for comms 
which they potentially don't control um, for to customers to get them to act in a more responsible, effective way. Wow. Wow. This is incredible. So um, one thing just to see if you've got a view on that I'm intrigued about is that we know that rubbish from the West was being shipped to Indonesia, to Malaysia mm -hmm. and China. And, you know, a few years ago, I think we heard that they'd rebelled and said, we don't want this anymore. Yep. What's been Do you know what's happening on that part of the story at all? So that's one of the reasons that uh, for the the speed uh, of, of this legislation and the sort of the uh, the urgency for it, because if nowhere else will accept uh, our rubbish, we'll have to deal with it ourselves. Um, and if we're going to have to deal with it ourselves, what we don't want is really, really dirty, uh, badly mixed rubbish that's very expensive to bury or to burn and that produces a lot of um, you know, pollution when you burn it. Instead, what you want is everyone um, actually just recycling everything, it to be really, really clean, it not create a lot of um, negative emissions, a lot of pollution when it's, when it's burnt. So that's one of the reasons, because, of, because everywhere else is shutting their doors, and there's been this kind of domino effect started with China. Um, but we've also seen, as you say, Indonesia, um, Turkey's also sort of looking at, at shutting some of its doors as well. So that's, that's one of the things that's giving the urgency of, if we can't make it someone else's problem, we better solve it ourselves. Wow, that's interesting. So there are going to be numerous ways that manufacturers will respond, not just to that, but there's another trend, obviously, which is simply the, uh, the requirement for being seen to be more sustainable and to reduce, mm -hmm. let's say, plastic. Have we got some examples where a company will just say, well, I've got to find a different way of providing this in a way that doesn't generate waste that uh, we can understand, because perhaps more of this will occur because it will be pushed by this regulation uh, to do it. So there's a, there's a lot of talk around things like uh, reuse models. So um, there's, one, there's one big initiative uh, called the Loop Initiative, which is being run by TerraCycle, but you also have a lot of brands like, um, like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, um, Danone, I think, and various others getting on board. And what that's going to be is about saying, rather than here's a bit of flimsy plastic packaging that you take, and then you've got left with you, so you chuck it away. Um, actually, how about we give you something durable, something you can refill? Kind of going back to the old school version of, if you want a bottle of Coke, comes in a glass <laughs> bottle and you return it. So this, this model, which will be for a whole range of products, you know, it's from ice cream to you know, laundry um, detergent, whatever. Um, it's delivered to your door. You use it up. When you're done with the, um, the packaging, you send it back to be refilled again. So that's one way to get around some of these additional, additional costs. Wow. And is there anybody who's, again, at the forefront of this anywhere in the world who's trying this out and leading the way in anywhere? Um, oh, I'd say that's the largest um, scale single project that brings together lots of different people, because there are, there are a load of different companies who've been experimenting on the edges. You know, a reefer model isn't new. People have been experimenting with it here and there for, for quite a while. So, um, you know, at the body shop where you worked, they, they had their own refill. Uh, they had their own refill model. There, you know, there's models for refill of, of milk in, um, I think it's Kenya. There's, you know, there's there's a huge range of these of these different things around around the world. But what's interesting about the the loop one is the scale that's talking about. Um, and actually, and similarly with uh, people like, uh, I think it's Waitrose doing that unpackaged trial. So uh, big brands doing it at scale and trying out um, something that could that could have a really a really really big impact. Because as you know, so often the issue with sustainability is it's Here's some lovely, you know, small examples here and there, but they don't add up to the big change that we need. Yeah. 
Now, what about packaging that's reused? Um, because uh, you, you've given an example there of reuse because you have something that's refilled um, at home, let's say. But what about something where you, you actually take it back to the shop and it goes through that journey? Have we got uh, an example of that? And do we see that working in parallel to what you say? So rather than, I guess, it's refilling in your container, you take your container and you get another container with it refilled. Um, so, well, I suppose the, so the loop example is that you never really own the container. Oh, right. You send the container back and they'll, give you, they'll send you a new container. It won't oh. be the same one. Um, but as opposed to the uh, Waitrose Unpackaged um, project, that was, a, you know, I, I think they did it with pasta and lentils and that sort of thing, where you could go to the store, you could fill whatever um, container you wanted um, and then take that away and sort of keep doing it. So I suppose those are the two slightly different versions. Good, got that. So another area that we, in England or well, in Britain, has been around for a while, but actually I've discovered it's not a worldwide uh, phenomenon, is let's say the charity shop reuse mm -hmm. or the reuse of clothing and things and mm -hmm. charity shops being a vehicle for that. But uh, those, those charity shops don't exist actually in many countries. So where are you seeing some interesting trends in, in the reuse so that the, that material at end of life doesn't just go into a landfill but finds another resale opportunity? Mm -hmm. So um, there's actually there's really interesting work that IKEA are doing in particular. Um, so what they've said and they're trialing in, in lots of markets around the world is actually buying back used furniture um, and buying it back for between, I think, 30 percent and 50 percent of its original full price. So that's a significant amount of money that they're putting out. Um, and then the idea is that they take it, they refurbish it in whatever way is needed, you know, whether it's covering out scratches or, you know, fixing a, a broken shelf or whatever it is, and then they'll, they'll sell it back. And one of the things that's really exciting about uh, their work is that they found there is the uh, consumer demand for it. Because it's easy to say, like, we'll do this, but then no one will want to buy it. And actually, they found that people do want to buy it. And partly it's because it fits the way they approach things. They're all about um, easy access for everyone, something that everyone can afford. So the idea of here's a way of getting the great furniture you love, but that's in a way that's even more affordable. It fits well with what they're talking about. And it gets over what can be the, the issue where sometimes secondhand goods feel lower status. Like, oh, I don't want something else someone, someone else has, has used. So it, sort of, it fits within their brand story. And the reason I think that's important is that, again, to, to achieve the speed that we need, we need um, consumers and citizens to be part of the journey. And just telling them what they have to do and ignoring them what they, what they think and feel isn't going to work. Whereas if you can work with where they are at, um, and what can be palatable for them will get quicker change, which is what we need. Because it is interesting that the idea of uh, used furniture and used clothes is not is not new. There's a whole infrastructure of video, but it's mm -hmm. not got any credibility. It, well, not credibility. It's got no um, appeal in a way, or that's not the right word. It has got no uh, appetite appeal, perhaps. Yeah. Um, what, and again, what, what I think is interesting. Yeah, go on. There is that um, I think it's Oxfam who've been running this secondhand September campaign, which is around kind of changing perceptions to say, actually, this is great. It's great for everyone. Why, why don't you like it? It gives you, you know, access to uh, you know, more interesting uh, clothes than potentially the ones that everyone else is buying off the rack at the same time in the same places. Um, so I think it, it's really interesting to see kind of movement there. And, and equally working with the British Heart Foundation, they're doing a huge amount of great work around secondhand electricals. Um, and making that kind of much more uh, palatable and exciting for, for people to, to kind of build, again, a win-win for everyone.
Right. So scale is really, really important, as you've said. Um, where do you feel we need to see some scale initiatives to turn nice ideas into big, substantial ones around this, these sorts of topics? Is there anything that comes to mind? Um, where do we need scale issues? Um, I think the area of fashion is, uh, is really, really important. Um, again, working with quite a lot of uh, fashion companies, the, the challenge there is that it's in everyone's mindset, um, what's been built into everyone's mindset of you've got to have something totally new all the time and then check it away quickly and get the even newer thing. Um, and where we need um, sort of scale solutions is how do we shift the entire industry? Can we uh, create and use standards for, um, for how you could recycle um, a, a garment? So the issue can be if it's really fiddly and small and it's got lots of zips and buttons and really, really tightly uh, woven and sort of tightly connected uh, fabrics, then it's really hard to do anything with it other than throw it away or, or sell it on. Um, and you know, if it gets a bit of a stain, then no one's going to want to buy it. So then you just have to check it away. Whereas there's this idea that actually if you can create standards for circular design, um, so it could be taken apart. So actually, um, rather than having endless uh, bits and pieces all over the place, um, if it could be made of you know, a fewer, simpler panels, you could easily separate them. Um, and then you could easily, you know, weave them together into a new garment or then deconstruct that fabric and, and turn it into, into new fabric. So that's the kind of thing where a scale solution is needed. And uh, individual companies are sort of experimenting with themselves, like Zalando and ASOS have these, have these new design standards they're trialing. But to get it at the scale it needs, there needs to be... Uh, solutions that work across lots of different retailers rather than everyone having their own way of doing things and then needing to collect clothes only from uh, only from one one store so that would be a big area and and again there's there's currently uh, talk at a legislative level of how do you create some of these um you said common platforms that's very interesting using the word design standard something which therefore creates uniformity across companies but is also thinking of the end of life within the design that's yeah exactly good so um, you are a futurologist as well. I want to come back to that because uh, this is about looking into the future as well and imagining what's coming up quickly because it's not about long-term future, but it's things that could surprise us. You've already told mm -hmm. us about this legislation, which I think for many of us is surprising. We didn't know about it. What other surprises do you think might be coming? Probably from governments because I've got a feeling they're going to drive things through regulation, but it may be through companies that um, you know, will change the way we do things such that we will be more sustainable in the, in the future, in the near future, mm -hmm. like in the next couple of years as opposed to the next 10 years. Yeah. So, well, the, the biggest uh, surprise that people may not be expecting, but that sort of, it's definitely coming, is that governments don't have much money. COVID has been incredibly expensive for everyone. It's been you know, more than expensive. It's been uh, devastating for, for many people, uh, both in terms of the lives lost, but also the livelihoods affected. Um, that means there's going to be uh, money is going to be in short supply and government having borrowed so much money to do things like furlough schemes, um, they're going to need to find ways of recouping some of that money. And one of the most obvious uh, ways that we're starting to see them experiment with already is through uh, environmental taxes, saying uh, this seems politically acceptable. I won't lose votes if I say I'm going to I'm going to tax things more, but it's because it's bad for everyone. That's sort of, it's an easier fiscal argument to make. Um, so they can say, well, actually we need to raise more money. We can do so through green taxes because they're 
politically more palatable than just increasing income tax or increasing VAT. Um, so we're likely to see more and more, uh, again, of the real costs. So like with the packaging, these are real costs that someone has to pay. But um, we may also see it around, um, for instance, biodiversity is a topic that's getting a lot more attention um, internationally and nationally. So it could be um, requirements that whenever you build a building, um, these are already coming in. Whenever you build a building, you've got to make sure that you don't make the environment worse when you do so. You don't wipe out loads of species um, and then and create nothing for them. So at the simple level, that's things like, um, how do you make sure when you build a new building, you create, say, a green roof, um, which has plants, et cetera, on, on top, so there, there can be pollinators. Um, so there's legislation coming in around that, and just generally any kind of green tax. Um, and so packaging is a really big area, and one of the other big areas is obviously going to be carbon. So we've got the uh, COP26 happening later this year, um, and to move at the pace we need to move to reduce um, the effects of climate change, we're going to need a stronger legislative intervention, and that may well turn into some sorts of taxes or bans. Um, so those would, would be kind of the, the most obvious things I'd, I'd say was coming. Um, and I say in terms of topics that people that particularly publicly haven't been talked about so much, I would say especially biodiversity because there's a it's it's quite a few years behind other topics, but there's there's the sort of building scientific and international NGO focus uh, on that that's going to going to really start um, feeding through in terms of both. Uh, businesses and consumers in the next few years. Well, all of that has been fascinating. And I must admit that last point um, is both interesting and frightening and probably very real. So I suspect that's not going to be something of the future, but as you say, something that's going to appear very quickly. And uh, I think as we notice some of these subjects, when we talk about them as something that might happen, suddenly are in the news the next day. And I suspect that will. So thank you very much for all of those insights. My pleasure. It's been great to, great to talk.